Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, Judges chapters 6 and 7. Well, last time we met, we were still in the midst of Judges chapter 6 and the anointing by God of Gideon as his newest shofet, his newest judge. And we got about as far as verse 24. And you know, we ended up with Gideon. We ended up with Gideon finally understanding that this mysterious traveler who suddenly showed up under a terebinth tree where Gideon was working was the Lord. And this physical apparition is described in the narrative as the Malach Yehoveh, right? the angel of the Lord. And then Gideon calls him Yehoveh, to which this being agrees. So we can have no doubt that this physical form was God. It was not human. It was not even a run-of-the-mill angel. There is such a thing. Never run into one of those one of the run-of-the-mill angels. And yet we also touched lightly on the rather heavy theological implications of all this. We're told in several places in the scriptures that no man can see God and live. Are we not? Yet at the same time, we're told in the New Testament that if you've seen Yeshua, you've seen the Father. Some say that this is evidence that the Old Testament is dead and gone, that the New Testament offers an entirely new ballgame with entirely new rules. Now, of course, I don't agree with that. But it does make things easier for us if we can just throw two-thirds of the Bible in the trash. Now, we're not going to solve this mystery today, but I'm not going to let it go either. And frankly, despite some well-known doctrines that purport to be completely certain of what God consists of, and that every mention of God in the Bible must be precisely one of three named persons, that an honest reading of the Holy Scriptures makes that matter hardly cut and dried. For instance, obviously in the New Testament where Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, it can't be taken rigidly or as fully literally as it often is. Because even the Trinitarian doctrine doesn't take that statement fully literally or we would see Jesus as the Father and the Father as Jesus. And while that's true to a degree... It's not true in another sense. Thus, what do we do when we have Jesus praying to the Father, always honoring the Father as above himself? Do we have Jesus praying to himself? You see, we need to be a little cautious in presuming to be able to precisely define the divine in human terms.
We need to be even more humble than cautious about it. Now here in Judges, Gideon did not see, I guarantee you, the Father in direct revelation. Rather, he saw some kind of manifestation of God that represented the Father, carried the authority of the Father, acted on the behalf of the Father to such an extent that he even accepted being called Yehovah. Now, although it's pretty standard in evangelical circles to declare that this manifestation of God in the Gideon story must be the Son, I I can't possibly see that as a reasonable conclusion. After all, the angel of the Lord is addressed here as Yehovah, the official formal name of the Father as told originally to Moses. Even the most fundamental in evangelical Christian scholars see that while there is certainly an organic relationship of Jesus to the Father, that they're not identical beings. Now, as challenging as all this subject is for we Christians and Messianics and adherents even to Judaism, it must have been equally as difficult for Gideon to sort out. I mean, he's got to be sitting here thinking as this is happening. Is this God or isn't this God? I mean, if it is God, then what do I do? Because this person sitting on a rock talking to me sure looks human. But he calls himself Yehovah. What do I do? Due to the religious syncretism, that had occurred over the last many years in the Promised Land. The Hebrews had blended their religion with the religion of the Canaanites. The Hebrews worshipped and accepted a combination of gods that included Yehovah. Their rituals incorporated some elements of the Law of Moses, some elements of Baal worship. The Israelites' general understanding of gods and what those gods wanted, how they behaved, blended Torah with standard pagan customs of the mystery Babylon religions. So as difficult as it is for a mere man to comprehend God under any circumstances, even from the purest and most unadulterated scriptural perspective, it's utterly impossible when pagan practices have become so entwined with biblical truth that it's hard to tell where one ends and the other begins. The Torah teaches that when the principle of illicit mixtures, sha'anets, is violated, whether that mixture, by the way, is of people, animal, seeds, food, relationships, or anything, that attempts to rationalize or join together God's principles with humanistic ideas, it inevitably leads to tevel, confusion. Gideon was totally confused by this because he and all Israel had had mixed the worship of Jehovah with the worship of Baal. 
He didn't know how to recognize God. He didn't know how to approach God. He didn't know how to deal with God. See, this is a huge flashing red warning sign for us as followers of Messiah. It's not a question. Hear me. It's not a question of whether or not we have mixed up pagan religions with Christianity. It's how do we untangle it. Well, just as with Gideon, the first step was to recognize, and in the denials, that syncretism has occurred. That we must determine to rededicate ourselves to the pure ways of the Lord. Cut down, burn all those things in our congregations, in our lives, that are not of God if we ever can expect to please Him and be blessed by Him. And we're going to see that in the story of Gideon. And we're going to see that it's all great on paper, and it's wonderful to hear about it and to talk about it, but doing it's a lot harder. Open your Bibles to Judges 6. We're going to continue at verse 25. Judges 6, verse 25. It's on page 278 of your complete Jewish Bible. That very night Adonai said to him, Take your father's bull and the other bull, that seven-year-old, destroy the altar to Baal that belongs to your father, cut down the sacred pole next to it, Build a proper altar to Adonai your God on top of this strong point. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering using the wood of the sacred pole that you cut down. Gideon took ten of his servants and did what Adonai had told him to do. He didn't do it by day because he was afraid of the men in his father's household and those from the city, so he did it at night. And when the men of the city got up in the morning, there was the altar of Baal destroyed, the sacred pole cut down, and the second bull, a burnt offering on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who could have done this? But after investigating, they concluded that Gideon, the son of Joash, had done it. Bring out your son, the men of the city demanded of Joash, so that he may die, because he destroyed the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole next to it. But Joash said to all those crowding around him, you're defending Baal, are you? It's your job to save him. Anyone who defends Baal will be put to death before, the, before morning. You know, if he's a god, let him defend himself. After all, somebody destroyed his altar. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was given the name Yerubael. Because they said, let Baal defend himself against him since he destroyed his altar. Now all Midian, Amalek, and the others from the east joined forces, crossed the Jordan, set up camp in the Jezreel Valley. But the spirit of Adonai covered Gideon. He sounded the call on the shofar, and Aviezer rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all Manesha, and they too rallied behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali. They came up to join them. Gideon said to God, If you're going to save Israel through me, as you said you would, then here, I will lay a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only while all the ground stays dry, I'll be convinced 
that you'll save Israel through me as you said you would. And it happened. He got up early in the morning, pressed the fleece together, and wrung dew out of it, a bowl full of water. But Gideon said to God, now don't be angry with me, because I'm asking just one more thing. Just give me one more test, please. This time let it be dry on the fleece with dew all over the ground. And that's what God did that night. It was dry on the fleece only, even though there was dew all over the ground. Verse 25 begins with, That very night, Yehovah. It goes on to say, He spoke again to Gideon and gave instructions. God wasted no time in starting the purification process in order to re-educate and disentangle Gideon and Israel from this idolatrous mess that they had created for themselves. The first thing Gideon must do is to destroy the altar to Baal. Because an altar to Jehovah was about to be constructed on that same spot. And it's impossible that the two could coexist. Before we talk about those details, let me mention something. That most Christians have at least some passing knowledge and interest. The coming rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. You know, my dear friend, our dear friend, Gershon Solomon, founder of the Temple Mount Faithful Organization, he and I discussed this matter at length just a few days ago. And Jews and Christians alike have a whole range of views about what the circumstances might be that allow the rebuilding of that temple. One of the standard ones is is that an earthquake is going to destroy the Golden Dome and make way for a Jewish temple. Now, however optimistic as that might seem, there's no way politically that such an event would change much. The condition of the world's demand to keep peace with Islam would remain. Another of the more popular views held is that the Islamic Dome of the the Rock Shrine that has dominated the Temple Mount for well over a thousand years is a few meters south of where Herod's Temple resided and thus it's conceivable that if a peace accord was reached and permission was given the two edifices could coexist side by side. Now, both Gershon and I agree that, in fact, the rock over which the Dome of the Rock is built is, in fact, the place of the Holy of Holies. So the idea of twin structures sharing the Temple Mount is only fanciful and uninformed dreaming. Be that as it may, even if such a thing as both the Islamic shrine and the Temple being built right next to one another could happen politically, God would never accept such a thing from his people. The Lord does not share his standing or his land with pagan deities. Here in Judges, and we're going to find it elsewhere in the Tanakh as well, anywhere that the Lord instructs a monument or an altar be built to his holy name, And where his holy presence is desired, all vestiges 
of other gods must be removed and the place purified. To this there is never compromise. Thus the Lord tells Gideon that he's to destroy that altar of Baal, cut down the sacred pole that stands next to it, and then replace it with a proper altar for Adonai. Further, when Gideon goes to do this task, he's to take with him his father's bull, because it's going to be used as a sacrifice, a purification. Now, there's been a lot written about this aspect of the bull or bulls because of a strange word construction in Hebrew that literally says the bull of bullocks. The bull of bullocks. The difficulty also is that the phrase usually translated as the second bull, just like in our complete Jewish Bibles, comes from the root Hebrew word, root word shana that can carry the meaning of exalted or higher rank. Okay. Thus, it was very likely from the context that there weren't two bulls involved. There was just one, and it was the highest ranking bull of bullocks owned by Yoash, Gideon's father. Rank was determined by age when it came to bulls and many other animals. The older the animal, the greater its worth, to a point, of course. Thus, a seven-year-old bull was considered extremely valuable. But it is also no coincidence that the number of years of oppression from the Midianites upon Israel was also seven. Not only would this bull have been born in the first year of that Midianite oppression, but also because the purpose of the bull was an atonement Each year of its life would pay for one year of Israel's rebellion and the accompanying wrath of God. That was pressed upon the people by means of invading the invading Midianites. But before that bull was sacrificed, it was going to be used to pull down the sacred pole of that pagan god. Now the sacred pole in Hebrew is called Asherah. Now, Asherah is the fertility goddess and the wife of Baal that normally was expressed in the form of a tree. Now, this combination of an altar to Baal accompanied by an Asherah next to it was was typical. And what would be, of course, a very serious swipe at these phony Canaanite gods Yehovah ordered Gideon not only to remove that Asherah, to pull it down, but to chop it up and use it as firewood for Yehovah's sacrificial fire. I think that's pretty cool. I like that. Gideon obeys, but he's cautious. He knows full well that this is not going to settle well with anybody. His father, not his family... Not the nearby Israelites, and especially not their Canaanite neighbors. Now it appears that Yoash, Gideon's father, was actually this pagan holy site's protector and caretaker. And although I say pagan, understand that Yoash, the Hebrew, did this willingly and with the full blessing of the Hebrew people. 
We're told that Yoash was of the clan of Aliezer, which of course was part of Manasseh. This place where Gideon lived was his own clan's village. They owned it, they controlled it, they had adopted Baal, Ashtoreth, and likely other elements of Canaanite worship to go along with their traditional worship of Jehovah. This high place or strong point where the Baal altar was located was revered by Yoash and his clan. It wasn't despised in any way. Now, despite an erroneous depiction to the contrary, Israel was not forced to worship other gods. They did it because they wanted to. And they had no concept that what they were doing was wrong. So Gideon took ten servants along with that bull up to Baal's altar, and he did it at night. Now, I can't help but point out that Gideon, who earlier told God that maybe he wasn't the best choice to be Israel's savior because he was from the poorest clan in Manasseh, owned at least ten male servants. Most male servants had families who were also in servitude to the master. The Hebrew word ebed, E-B-E-D, ebed, means servants or slaves. So these ten were in no way traditional family members. Therefore, this man that God called you valiant hero was every bit the nervous, excuse-making skeptic that Moses had been some 250 years or so earlier. And you can bet that the job of tearing down the altar and Asherah wasn't all that big. But Gideon wanted some protection when he did it. Was all this just unwarranted fear? Not at all. Because in verse 28, when some of the men of the village went up to the altar site, meaning they went up there to pay their homage to Baal, it was gone and they went ballistic. Baal's altar was demolished and in its place was a brand new one with the bull laid upon it and burned up and the Asherah pole had been used for kindling. And by the way, remember, these men who went up and found this situation were Israelites, not Canaanites. So they go rushing to Yoash, Gideon's father, and they tell him they have firm evidence that it was his son, Gideon, who had done this dastardly thing. One more time. This is not a matter that the village folks, mostly Hebrews, would have been punished by some Canaanites for this desecration. Rather, it was simply that they worshipped Baal. And they were deeply offended by this. So offended that they wanted to add murder to the long list of other sins they were so guilty of. They told Yoash to go get his son and bring him outside so they can kill him as a penalty for his defiling Baal's altar. Now Yoash, being a good father and apparently a pretty logical guy, says, Oh, wait a minute. If Baal's unable to defend his own altar, 
then just how powerful of a God is he? Does Baal need humans to defend his deity? Then he says that anyone who even attempts to defend Baal will be put to death by morning. Now this sounds like he means that he, Yoash, is going to kill any man who goes after his son. In fact, that's not the intent of the statement. It was common understanding in that era that to question the power of a god to defend himself was to impugn the divine character of that god. And the penalty for that offense was death, a penalty that Yoash, as Baal's caretaker, would be obliged to carry out. Yoash's logic was impeccable. Nobody should do anything. If Baal were real, he could avenge this sacrilege. And he couldn't, if he couldn't do that, then he's certainly not real, and thus there was no crime in the first place. Further, it would only be human, be a human and not another god, that Baal would have to fight because Joash says, after all, somebody destroyed his altar. That is, that obviously a human being did it. Did it. And what kind of an opponent is a mere human being to a god? Conclusion. Let Baal fight his own battles. He ought to be more incapable. Now, as a result of this, Gideon became known by a new name among his clansmen, Yerubael. Now, remember, in that era, a name was assigned to people based on their reputation or character or perhaps some famous act that they committed. Yerubael means, let Baal defend. Okay. Or better, as it meant when applied to Gideon, it meant the Baal fighter. From this point on, be alert in that we're going to see Gideon called by both of these names. In fact, in later books of the Bible, like 2 Samuel, he's given even a third name, Yerubosheth. Yerubosheth. That's because in later times, the word Bosheth, which means shame, became a derogatory nickname for Baal. Now, this entire episode to this point was largely about purifying Gideon and his family and ridding the village of the stench of idolatry. The God principle is simple and logical. Only a man who is in good stead with the Lord can lead his people in God's authority. It was necessary that Gideon and his family be the starting point of this cleansing. Now, in verse 33, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east descend once again upon the tribes of Israel. They stopped and camped as usual in the valley of Jezreel because it was one of the most fertile places in all of Canaan and it was where the most abundant crops grew. Ophrah, Gideon's hometown, was right on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. And of course, it was at the moment of need that the Lord empowered Gideon with the Holy Spirit power to be the deliverer of God's people. Now, we studied this Old Testament concept of how 
the Holy Spirit interacted with men prior to the first Pentecost, Shavuot, after Yeshua's crucifixion, that awesome day when the Holy Spirit began to indwell men. Before then, we basically got two different descriptions of this interaction between Holy Spirit and man. The Holy Spirit comes upon, or the Holy Spirit covers a man. And there are two different Hebrew words used that mean two entirely different things. The first word is Hayah, which is a rather general term that depending on its form and context can mean became or come to pass or even befall. On the other hand, here in Judges 6.34, where we're told that the Holy Spirit covered Gideon, the word is labesh, and it usually means to wear something like a garment or something that's put on like an article of clothing or a blanket. It was that a human is so enveloped in God's Spirit that that person becomes endowed with the ability to perform miraculous deeds, including the ability to prophesy or to perform works that far surpass the human nature from both a, 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 a courage and perhaps a physical strength standpoint. It is especially this ability to perform bravely in the face of humanly impossible odds against him or showing equally impossible strength and battlefield skill that most of the Shoftim displayed and we would be doubly so with Gideon. It says next that Gideon blew a trumpet. What it actually says is that he blew a shofar. Now this indicates not only the typical call to battle that the shofar symbolizes for Israel, but it also shows that Gideon immediately took up that mantle of leadership and it was he who was going to lead his people. Now essentially, this was the first thing that happened when Gideon was labesh. He was covered like a garment with the ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit. Notice it says that Aviezer joined Gideon. This would be natural, because Aviezer was the name of Gideon's own clan. Messengers were then sent to other tribes to come and join the holy war. And it says, Manasseh answered first. Again, that's natural, because the clan of Aviezer belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. Now, isn't it interesting how logical and less mysterious this all becomes when we understand the social structure of the times? Asher, Naphtali, and Zebulun also came. It appears that Asher must have learned something over the last 40 years because when Asher was called to assist Barak against King Yavin of Hatzor, Asher declined and was roundly criticized for it in the Song of Deborah. So now that Gideon has started the ball rolling, now that he has an army, suddenly he starts having doubts. He asks for a sign. And the sign is that famous, or infamous really, sheep's fleece that he laid upon the, flesh, the, the, the threshing floor, likely a very large flat rock. And here's what Gideon says to God. If you're going to save Israel through me, as you said you would, folks, 
We can cut it any way we like. But Gideon's flesh was in violent conflict with the Spirit of God that clothed him. Some rabbis argue that Gideon only wanted to be sure that it was actually God that promised to use him in such a mighty way. Eh, perhaps. I must say that, you know, I fight this urge myself quite regularly. I, I, I think I hear the Lord telling me to do something, to do, or, do it maybe a certain way, but I'm also pretty aware of my own ability to conjure up my own thoughts and assign them to God. My fear is that I'm imagining things. Or even worse, my pride or ego is working overtime. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes I'm just not sure how to discern it. My usual answer is to ask God to show me the answer plainly in some way I can identify with. Something that offers sufficient proof for me that I'm hearing from Him and that I'm not involved with my own self-deception. I I think I can believe that's more or less what was happening with Gideon. But it's nothing to be proud of. Nothing to be satisfied with. Gideon asks for this sign. Gideon says, I'll lay a sheep's sheep's fleece on the threshing floor, and if the Lord will supernaturally cause the fleece to become wet with dew, while the area all around it stays dry, then he'll know for sure that it's God. And he's with him. Morning arrives and there it is. That fleece is all wet. The ground is dry. Ah, but there's a problem. Gideon ponders this for a while and he thinks, you know, it's entirely possible this could happen naturally. And maybe I'm mistaking this for Jehovah's approval. So he devises another test. You know, I can't tell you the number of people who tell me they lay a fleece when they're not sure about things. Can I tell you a little secret? That's not really a very good indication of our spiritual maturity. So we probably shouldn't be in a hurry to tell other people about it. People say to me, well, I'm seeking God's will with a fleece. Okay, but that's not what Gideon was doing. Gideon already knows God's will. God told it to him bluntly. He's only seeking reassurance to bolster his courage, to bolster his faith. I don't know of any better way for sure, but if one's going to choose a way to discover God's will, my opinion is that laying a fleece probably isn't that way. There's another problem with laying fleeces. And the story of Gideon demonstrates it. When men come up with a means to test God, maybe the results aren't all that conclusive or convincing. Now what? We often come up with stuff that for the moment seems like a pretty good test. And then when it happens... We can think of a dozen ways 
in which the same result could have been achieved without God's intervention. Gideon reasoned, well, you know, fleeces attract water rather readily. And then they retain it. So it wouldn't be all that strange for dew to be attracted to the fleece and, and it would moisten it and then in a little bit of time it would evaporate off the rock. and uh. So he decides it's more logical to do it in the opposite manner. He asks that the same ground be wet now that was dry before and the fleece that was wet now be dry following morning. And that's what happened, so now he's convinced. Let's move on to Judges chapter 7. Then Yerubael, that is Gideon and all the people with him, got up early and set up camp by Ein Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them by Givat Moreh in the valley. And Adonai said to Gideon, There are too many people with you for me to hand Midian over to them because I don't want Israel to be able to boast against me. We saved ourselves by our own strength. Therefore proclaim to the people anyone who is anxious or afraid should go back home while we stay here on Mount Gilead. 22,000 returned, but 10,000 remained. And Adonai said to, God, uh, said to Gideon, but there are still too many people. Have them come down to the water, and there I will screen them for you. If I say of anyone, this one is for you, he will go with you. If I say this one's not for you, he won't. So he brought the people down to the water, and Adonai said to Gideon, Put to one side everyone who laps up water with his tongue the way a dog does. And put to the other side everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. Three hundred lapped putting their hands to their mouth. All the rest of the men got down on their knees to drink water. Adonai said to Gideon, I'll use the 300 who lapped the water to save you. I'll hand Midian over to you. Let all the others go back home. So they took the provisions and the shofars of the people. And then he sent all the men of Israel away, each to his tent, but the 300 men he kept. Well, the camp of Midian was in the valley below him. And that night Adonai said to him, Get up and attack the camp because I've handed it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack, go down with your servant Purah. And after you hear what they're saying, you'll have the courage to attack the camp. So with his servant Purah, he went down to the outpost of the camp. Now Midian, Amalek, and all the others were from the east had settled in the valley as thick as locusts. Their camels, too, were beyond counting like the sand on the seashore. Gideon got there just as a man was telling a comrade about a dream he had had. I just now dreamt that a loaf of barley bread fell into the camp of Midian, came to the tent, and struck it so hard that it overturned the tent and knocked it flat. And his comrade answered, This can only be the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all its army into his hands. Well, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he fell on his knees in worship. And then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Get up, because Adonai has handed Midian's army over to you. He divided the 300 men into three companies. He put in the hands of all of them shofars and empty pitchers with torches in them. Then he said to them, watch me and do what I do. When I get to the edge of the camp, whatever I do, you do the same. When I and everyone with me blow the shofar, and then you blow your shofars all around the whole camp and shout, for Adonai and for Gideon. 
Well, Gideon and the, and the uh, hundred men with him arrived at the edge of the camp a little before midnight, just after they changed the guard. They blew the shofars and broke in pieces the pitchers that were in their hands. All three companies blew their shofars, broke the pitchers, and held the torches in their left hands, keeping their right hands free for the shofars they were blowing. And they shouted, The sword for Adonai and for Gideon. Then as every man stood in his place around the camp, the whole camp was thrown into panic. Everyone screaming and trying to escape. Gideon's men blew their 300 shofars. And Adonai caused everyone in the camp to attack his comrades. And the enemy fled beyond Beit Shittah near Tzai uh, as far as the border of Avel Mochalah by Tabat. Then men of Israel were summoned by Naphtali, Asher, and both regions of Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hills of Ephraim with the message, Come down and attack Midian and capture the rivers before they get there, as far as Beit Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim came together and seized the rivers as far as Beit Barah and the Jordan. They also captured two chiefs of Midian, Orev and Zeev. They put Orev to death at the rock of Orev and Zeev at Zeev's winepress. Then as they kept pursuing Midian, they brought the heads of Orev and Zeev to Gideon who had crossed to the far side of Jordan. We'll get just a short distance into this and then call it a day. Verse 1 explains how the opposing forces were going to be arrayed. Let me be clear that this is quite a different scenario in this case than it had been with Joshua and the Israelite army against the Canaanites. Here in this story, the Israelites are strictly a militia of herders and farmers and craftsmen and merchants and so on who really hadn't known battle. The Midianites and the Amalekites, on the other hand, were nomadic raiders and bandits. They were in no way a trained and disciplined army, but they were huge in number and they were hardened fighters. Now, Israel's men were located south of the... Uh, Midianites near the spring of Herod at the foot of uh, Mount Gilboa. In Hebrew, this place is called Ein Herod. It means spring of Herod. Herod is a tribal or a clan name. And the Midianites were located due north by a place called the Hill of Moreh. Now, the phrase in the valley in, in these verses is referring to the Jezreel Valley that these nomadic forces seem to prefer every year that they came. Now, note how the valley of Jezreel is so central to practically every battle um, that Israel fights. Okay. Barak had won the Jezreel Valley from King Yavin some 50 years earlier. And when the Bible speaks of the end times battle of Armageddon, in reality, the battle is going to take place in the Jezreel Valley. Har Megiddo, 
the mountain of Megiddo called Armageddon in English merely overlooks the valley of that great and final battle. Now in a kind of ironic twist, verse 2 tells us that God will now test Gideon. Whereas Gideon twice tested God. The Lord says that Gideon has way too many troops for this. Because when they win, they're going to be too self-confident and sure that it was by their own strategies, courage, and abilities. Rather, Jehovah wants them to clearly understand that it is He who is the one who gives Israel her victories. And thus all glory and honor should go to Him. So the Lord tells Gideon, to offer to his militia that any men who are fearful can return home immediately. And by the way, this is in accordance with God's law of Deuteronomy 21.8. Now, fear is contagious. And it can have disastrous and demoralizing effects on an army that can even result in mass panic, desertion. And it's a rather sad commentary that in the next verse we see how many two out of three of those who had answered the call to holy war take up Gideon's offer. Of the 32,000 men that came, only 10,000 had the courage to stay and risk their lives. But then the Lord tells Gideon that it's still too many. And he devises a means to reduce that fighting force even further. God says to Gideon in verse 4 that he won't make Gideon choose, that the Lord himself will select this elite group. And Jehovah tells Gideon to take his men down to the brook so they can drink water. How they drink the water is going to be the determining factor, and here's how it works. When the men stoop over to drink from the brook, now they all have to go down on their knees because there's no other natural or practical way to drink from a, from a stream. However, those who use their hands as a cup and bring the water up to their mouths to lap at it, so to speak, those are chosen as opposed to those who bend over from their knees and put their faces, their mouths down to the water. The idea was that those who lifted the water up to their mouths were more instinctive fighters who were always alert and wary. While those who would put their faces down to the stream were somewhat less so. So the first test, let the fearful all go home. The second cut down eliminated those who were careless. The result was that a mere 300 men were selected. And this was the right balance as far as the Lord was concerned. I can imagine Gideon wasn't all that thrilled about it. Only 1% of the men who willingly came to fight for Gideon were going to be used. 1%. We'll continue with this story the next time we meet.